Welcome to Deacon's Pod. I'm Deacon Dennis. Hello, this is Deacon Tom. So here we are, Dennis. How you, are you doing today? I'm doing better than I deserve uh, as usual, Tom. Uh, indeed. I'm doing all right. You're kicking back? Are you doing oh, any of the... Yeah. Oh, I'm, it's bingo day. So, yeah, you know. it's a day off. <laughs> well, my wife is gone, you yeah. know? I mean, I'm just, it's just me and the dog running with scissors. Yeah, so we're doing good all right. old Saint bingo. Yep. Where would we be without... Oh. Yeah, Saint bingo. Hey. Yeah. Saved a lot of marriages. It, That's it a joke. That's a joke. <laughs> oh, and she's she's with Mrs. Casey. Too. I know that. Yeah. yeah. All right. So but that's, for Rachel, it's, why, it's therapy for her to get her out of the way. Well, it, it is yeah. for Debbie too. Yeah. And God bless her. My wife asked for nothing. It's like go have you know, fun, please. That's right. Do something for you. Yeah. Stop worrying about the rest. Sit on there and listen to B fifteen. Yeah. Yeah. My, another way in which. I'm getting better than I deserve, the marriage department. But anyway, yeah, but that gives us a little quiet time to do a little recording, so that's good. Yeah. And and last night I was doing some recording, a Zoom on social justice for our home diocese of Norwich, Connecticut. Oh, nice. With whom? Of which we are holy deacons yeah. thereof. We They had adult, you know, OCIA, some people being confirmed, some are being baptized, you know, the whole oh, nice. thing. And it was about forty-five of them, oh, oh. tiny little boxes. Really? And yeah. I, yeah, on the screen, and I did forty-five minutes on morality and social justice. What the, you know, some basic principles, and what's the difference between the two, and why is it important, kind of thing. Well, is that Faith, faith Formation doing that? Yeah, yeah, it's part of their yeah. Good. catechetical yeah. formation work for receiving the sacraments or entering the church. So I did that. And was, it was very nice. It was nice, fun. you know. It's nice to be asked. Isn't it great to have that kind of technology, though? Really, I mean, just think of oh, how yeah. far we've come. I'm in uh, Florida talking to Norwich. Yep. Hey. Yeah, which is great. Yeah. I am uh, Norwich, Connecticut. Yeah, shout out to Norwich, Connecticut. Yeah, Norwich. Both of our listeners there. Can anything good come from Norwich, Connecticut? Yeah. A prophet's not honored in his own home. So they you know say. That. I think I read that somewhere. Yeah, I keep telling them we're kind of a big deal, Tom, and they just laugh. <laughs> and they just don't. It's like, hey. And I know anyway, why they're laughing. Yeah. I know we're a big deal in Iceland. And that's good enough for well, me. Well, yeah, we do have some people who stumbled across <laughs> us. <laughs> we do. That's amazing. In these places. You know, I was thrilled to talk to, you know, 40 people on Zoom. That's oh, yeah. Good. I mean, yeah, you have something good. at the parish and 40 people show up. Correct. You're, you know, you're doing a program for Lent. You're like, wow, I'm killing it. You get some here. energy, you know, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. So the whole idea of that's the idea is share the good stuff. Yeah. And we got some good stuff today. We're going to interview someone I've been dying to interview, Sister Simone Campbell, that our listeners may know from her escapades of the nuns on the bus. That was in the news a couple years oh, ago. Oh, that was she big worked, news. That made yeah. front page coverage. She worked out of Network, which is the Catholic lobbying, the sisters and lay people now, but originally started by nuns. It's been there, I think it's over 50 years, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, lobbying Congress, like, to do the right thing, you know, and it's just great, you know, you talk to these nuns and they got stories and, you know, hey, the Speaker of the House is a Catholic schoolboy, so when sister's lecturing him about, you know, you this is not what you were taught in catechism. Mr. Speaker, really? you know, I mean, it, they have these conversations. Yeah, it's like, yeah. okay, sister, you know, geez. I think it strikes a nerve, really, you know? Well, you know, it's another angle. It's yeah. another lever. Yeah. It's like, come on, can we do the right, can we do something that Jesus would look at and go, oh, yeah, that's what I was talking about. <laughs> I mean, once in a while, you know, I mean, does it have to always be about us or some making some money or whatever? So anyway, that's what they do. They do the lobbying, and Sister Simone ran that organization. 
And, you know, we're going to talk to her about her life and her vocation and all that other stuff. And then basically it's in the area of what we call social justice, Catholic social teaching, Catholic social, everybody listening, doctrine, doctrine. This is not some liberal's opinion. This is official church teaching. This is not something extra we have for the hippies who might be into it. No, you got to take care of people. You got to make things fair. You got to do the right thing. It's not just about going to church. And of course, Pope Francis keeps saying this, and there's the blowback. Crazy talk. Yes. Yeah. It's like, this is not new. This is not political. This is the gospel, boys yeah. and girls, you know? But, anyways, they're working. She worked on that level in her community. You were telling me you came across something yeah, I, uh, the other day just by accident. Well, first it's, of all, it's like, interesting. You know, that whole Catholic social teaching, I've heard it said, and it's been written, the best kept Catholic secret going. People believe it's, it is it is for the marginal, the fringe Catholics, and it has no weight, but it, it ties directly into Jesus' teaching. The well, we're certainly not putting it in the front of the store well, window. Right. We're not pushing this. That's right. It's not like the, uh, you the know, hot I, issue of I, pro-life. You know, it's that's a part of it, but it's much bigger well, than that. Well, that message, that's part of that's part of the social justice, right. and we did. And if anybody knows anything about the Catholic Church, they know our stance on abortion. Exactly, yeah. They, yeah. Would that no they know our stance here. on the poor as well. Yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? Well, you mean, yeah, once the baby comes into the world, you've got to feed them. There's necessities <laughs> right. oh, of no, life. No, that's crazy talk. That's uh, communism, Deacon. Let alone, I know. I don't That's come a, here to listen to politics. <laughs> I know. No, well, there's that big separation. <laughs> there's a difference. It, I don't have a political life in my church life, no. But uh, no, to the point I came across back a while ago, I shared with you, I couldn't remember. So I went looking back, and we had a guest on here not too long ago, Robert Ellsberg, who does a lot of writing of saints, or oh, almost to be saints. He takes blessed people and people whose lives are just uh, faithful. Inspirational, inspirational. people. Not, but, uh, mostly canonized, but yeah. there's some that are... Yeah. In the, in, pos- the process in the pipeline, or, 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 or just you know. good holy people. Yeah. So I I came across you know, on December twenty seventh last year. It was Blessed Sarah Salkaza, who's a martyr. Now her story was going back to Nazi Germany. She was a Hungarian sister who joined the order of uh, the Sisters of Social Services, and she saw what was happening in her country, and she took action. She started to harbor the Jewish folks. And as all, a lot of these stories end, she got caught, and her and her four, I think, Jewish people that she was hiding were executed along the, you know, the Danube, you know, a beautiful place to die for and give witness for the faith. It's just an amazing story. But I happened to read that right after you had connected with Sister Simone, and I thought, what a timely thing. <laughs> Coincidences, a little that, Holy Spirit, yeah. little God incidents, not a coincidence. A God incidents, yeah. like a, but um, yeah, it, it's an interesting religious community because Sister Simone is really doing the kind of work they were founded to do, which was to deal with social issues. And this order, this religious community, was founded to deal to with deal, the stuff yeah. on that level. Yeah. Which Sister Simone, in her work as a lawyer for the poor and as the chief officer of the network lobby that's what she was doing it's like well why are these systems like this why are we making policy that hurts people why aren't we looking at this or you know yeah good stuff and a great interview and you know what rather than talking about her why don't we talk with her let's move yeah, on she's, she's, she's a hoot 
God bless her. She's a real human being and a holy woman, and she's fun. And you know what? She's a good hang. She's a good hang. She's why I stick around. (laughs) There you (laughs) go. It's people like this. (laughs) That's right. Make us look good. All right. So let's go to let's go listen to to Sister Simone. Simone Campbell was the executive director of Network, a nonprofit Catholic social justice lobby in Washington, D.C. In 2012, Sister Simone organized Network's Nuns on the Bus campaign that has attracted an avalanche of media attention in the United States and other parts of the world. Sister Simone also has a new book, Hunger for Hope, which we will get into with her, and a new project she's working on after a much-deserved rest after her stint at Network. She is involved in a project called Let's Understand, and we'll be talking to her about that. Sister Simone, who in 1978 became an attorney and founded a community law center that served the legal needs of the working poor. And she is a longstanding member of Sisters of Social Service. And we are happy to happy welcome you. Really welcome. Sister <laughs> Simone. Thanks. I don't, know, I don't know if you remember me, sister. I was on the steps of Church of the Holy Family in Hebrew and Connecticut back in the day when the bus went by. And I was a, I was the only guy there with a, about 30 <laughs> ladies, and a, some some religious, who waved to you as you went by on your on one of your tours. I love and it. Tours. I love it. She went through Hebrew? I, one of, yeah, yeah, I did. One, one of the tours. Let me one of the buses, I couldn't see that fast. It was in a hurry. Uh, oh. so, and the windows were, you know. I would have joined yeah, her. Yeah, I had you no couldn't idea. see in. We could see out. It was correct, correct. Experience. We understand yeah. why. Yeah. <laughs> but the advertising was great. Yeah, the big yeah, sign in that bus. Yeah. It was a gift yeah. of the spirit in my book. It really so. was. Oh, really? It really was. We'll get into that. Let's not get ahead of okay. ourselves. I'm sorry. So it's not, that's okay. No, it's not. You're among friends. You're among friends. You're excited. We're both fanboys here. We got Sister Simone. We, you know, this is a good day for I know. We're happy. Reading all the articles and then finally having her here huh. is a gift. So, Sister Simone, tell our listeners how you became a sister in a few words here. Just give them an idea of your journey. How did a nice girl like you end up with a couple of knuckleheads like this? <laughs> well, let's see. I grew up in California, in Long Beach, Southern California, so I'm a California girl. And I was educated by the Immaculate Heart Sisters, very creative women. And we learned early on in grammar school about the needs for justice, civil rights. It was late 50s, early 60s. And I was really committed to the idea of social justice. And then when I was a senior in high school and my sister, Katie, was a sophomore, Katie got diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease and given three to five years to live. And as I got older, I came to realize how important that was for me because what it taught me, that diagnosis taught me was that time is short. You got to make something happen while you can. And my urgency about getting involved in things was heightened after my first year of college. It was like, oh my God, I can't bear another semester in the classroom. So I want to get about it. And Jesus and justice were always connected. I used to say, well, they both begin with J. They're obviously the same thing. (laughs) And that led me then to enter my community, Sisters of Social Service, and we're committed to the social needs of doing the social mission of the church. We were founded in response to the 
social encyclical by Leo the Thirteenth on Rerum Novarum about organizing, labor organizing, and have been involved in that since then. So we're 101 years old now and as a community and our continue our commitment to justice. Now, ironically, when I joined the community, I did have to spend some time in the classroom, but we also got out. So it was enough to keep me engaged. So it's interesting because you didn't go with the IHMs. Now, I got to tell you that I'm more conversant with the orders of sisters in my long journey through life than the average bear. And until I saw you on the TV and I saw SSS and I was like, what community is that? And I had to look it up. Is it a small community or just mostly West Coast or, you know, and how did you find them? I mean, you know, I mean, of all the larger groups and everything. Right. Well, we knew them because my sister and I had gone to camp we ran, but it was like magic, this camp, because it brought girls from all over the Los Angeles basin. And we created community regardless of our economic background. So we had wealthy kids from Bel Air and we had kids from East LA. And then they had kids like me from a tract house in Long Beach. And we created community together. And for me, that was always magic. That was what I thought the world should be like. And so it was really strong attraction for me. I must say, when I joined the, told my parents I wanted to join the community, my mom says to me, well, don't you want to be a real sister? <laughs> and, and we never, and I think you guys will understand the distinction. We're a society of apostolic life, not a religious congregation. And right. so there are only 13 pontifical women's societies of apostolic life. So there's not very many of us. We've got a lot more freedom, or at least the way it used to be. And so we just went about doing the work that was needed and responding to the social needs of our time. And for me, that was my excitement. Being in a classroom, being in a, a nursing home, being in a, you know something institutional, I'd die. I would just die. I'm a troublemaker. So you're a society of apostolic life, like the Paulus Fathers. Exactly. We have a lot of listeners who know what the Paulus Fathers deal is. So, okay, so that's great. But are they on the East Coast, the Sisters for Social Service? Is that, or is that just? Well, there's a small group up in Buffalo that was the community in exile for our sisters in Hungary. We were founded originally in in Hungary, in Budapest in 1923. And our foundress was the first woman in the Hungarian parliament and when she was the head of the community. And so we've always had politics in our bones. But during suppression, during the communist times, some of the sisters fled and anchored the community from Buffalo. So they're still, the elderly sisters are still there in Buffalo. And we were up there in October to celebrate the 100th anniversary. And it was very dear to be with them. But my part of my branch of the community is West Coast. Is it a big community, like worldwide? Is there a lot of sisters for social service? Oh, no, there are not a lot of us, but we're worldwide. I mean, my community, my part of the community is U.S., Mexico, Taiwan, and the Philippines. Mm. And we're a total of, what, 58 in all of that. And the Eastern European sisters are Hungary, Slovakia, Romania, Cuba, and this small little group up in Buffalo. And then there's a small community up in Canada. So that's who we are. 
But the thing is, it's about we're dedicated to the Holy Spirit. Right, like the Paulus, the like the Paulus too. That's a, that's their oh, really? thing. I didn't know you oh, Isaac Hacker. Oh yes, you get. You didn't do your homework, sister. Well, I did my homework, but oh. anyway, sorry, you guys are keeping it more. <laughs> the Holy Spirit, oh, the whole deal. Go ahead, continue. We we wear a medal that are have either a pin or a medal that is says "Come Holy Spirit." It's who we are, and we talk about it all the time. But that leads us beyond institutions, beyond structures, to try new things, to respond to the needs of our time. There you go. Are you Benedictine, basically, too? Did I? Yeah, read that? Or we've got a Benedictine spirit. So yeah. it means... that's an interesting mix with a, a real forward-facing social work, social justice, you know, politics. What you're describing, and then you have this monastic spirituality. Can you give us a little sense of that? Well, I think it's less about monasticism and more about the contemplative life. And so we know that to do the trailblazing things that we try to do and occasionally are successful in depend on having a strong contemplative life. And so it's out of that contemplative reflection on the scripture about being in community, about welcoming people in, letting the rubs of life nourish our imagination and nourish our formation. That's the Benedictine part that really matters to us. It's mm. less about the hours and the form right it's contemplative versus monastic yeah because you obviously aren't set up to be monastic yeah because that's but that's interesting because and i think one of the things our listeners might be interested because you know you're you're bona fides for being out there and mixing it up with nuns on the bus and everything else and network for all the years you were there i think a lot of people want to know how you can do it how you can stand i mean a lot of people can't even talk about this stuff for 10 minutes without being exhausted and you're out there slugging away every day with congressmen and all other kind of nefarious people and you're not losing it i mean i'm looking at this smiling happy holy woman in front of me too bad the listeners can't see you but uh, then again they can't see tom and me so <laughs> you know you break, yeah, even, break more than even there right tom <laughs> but uh, you know that's how you do it you know i mean you can't be really active and out there mixing it up in the world and not replenish yourself. Exactly. But also it's trusting in what's being given. Because the I made retreat before the bus, so it was like December of 2011, the, before the bus thing created got created. And the thing that I learned on that retreat, which was, it was a contemplative retreat, and I learned the mistake of fighting against. And that too often we say we're going to push back against something. And when you push back, you get yourself stuck in that movement because the other side is going to push against you. And you can, neither one can move. Otherwise, the other one's going to you know, go forward. So what I learned was in this contemplative space was to not fight against, but rather fight for and fighting for a vision. So that lobbying becomes then trying to stand, not facing each other fighting, but shoulder to shoulder to say, hey, can we articulate what that problem looks like? For me, this is what I see. What do you see? And that if you can articulate the problem with shared language, you're 75% of the way to finding a solution. But it, it really requires not creating not seeing everybody as the enemy or the adversary, but rather as a potential partner if you can identify 
the positive things. Now, one of the things that's hard politically in our country is people aren't close enough to politicians to have that kind of conversation. And the gift of lobbying is that we got close. We could have those conversations. So it's to fight for a vision. Don't fight against. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think yeah. that ties into an article I think I came across, whether it played on NCR, about how to, your Lenten journey a couple of years ago, about engaging in conversation with people with different positions and how you went through. I was enlightening and a tough article about that process you just described. Right. Yeah, I wasn't terribly successful. <laughs> Let's well, it no, it, 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 to that degree, it was painful and listening to some of the conversations of people who who you know, have oh. different viewpoints and to be willing to listen to them when they just seem so uncharitable, unchristian, even though they're claiming to be, you know, the religious right, you know. So I'm reminded right. of the Germans who were on the inside of some of their belt buckles that God is with us on some of the elite Nazi troops, you know. They thought they were fighting for the right side. And, well, yeah, it's very hard. It's very hard. But if we don't do it, we're going to get drift further and further apart. And that's the thing that has me really concerned. And unless we take some action to move this reality of fighting for a vision to lower levels where we can engage others. So I, I don't know if I can sprinkle this in here now, but so last summer I did this tour to the South. And I drove across the South and went to bookstores using my book and was able to convene folks and have them educate me. What does it mean to be in the South? What does it mean to live here? And I learned so much from the people. But it's coming as a learner as opposed to somebody who's going to give them something. And this woman in Spartanburg, South Carolina, paid me the biggest compliment. It was early on in the trip. And she came up to me afterwards and she kind of said quietly, well, I came to listen to a sister talk about hope for 45 minutes. But you know what you did? Is you showed us the hope that we do have in each other. That was way better. And I thought, oh, wow, that's perfect. That's exactly what I wanted to do. And they taught me in the process. Isn't it? it is cool. Would you back up just a second and tell the listeners why you wanted to do a tour of the South? You didn't make that clear. What was the motivation oh. to say, well, I'm going to go to bookstores in the South and ask people to educate me? Tell yeah. them why you did that. Well, okay. So I had tried to get conser some conservatives to join us in our Let's Understand and to join in conversation. And all the people that I talked to, I must talk to 30 conservative, mostly people of faith, said to me, oh, no, sister, I could talk to you, but I couldn't be public. I couldn't be a part of your group, blah, blah, blah. That went on. So then I realized we needed, I needed a new design. It, my design wasn't working. People weren't going to join me. So if they weren't going to join me, then I needed to go meet others who puzzled me, who I didn't know. And the South scares me. I grew up in the civil rights. I remember as a little kid watching the Bull Connor water hose the kids in the square in Birmingham. So that's my sense of the South. And I needed to change that. I needed to build some bridges. And so, and it's also the politically polarized part of our country. So much gets 
stymied because of Southern representation in the House and Senate and here in D.C. And so I needed to open myself to learn something new. You know, it's, it's really weird. It's always easier to say, you ought to learn something. This was a good idea for you. But when it comes to me, oh, yeah, I guess maybe I ought to learn something. So I thought I'd start with myself and then try to build on that. And it was revelatory. It was amazing. Yeah, yeah, good for you. I want to be like you when I grow up, <laughs> if I ever grow up. Taking input, yes. Yeah, yeah, very good. And I'm <laughs> Oh, wait, on that one. I think because I'm a woman, women are way more used to getting input and seeking input. The male model for our society does not include seeing ignorance or admitting things I don't know. It's very mm -hmm. hard in our society sure. for guys to do that. Sure. So I have a an advantage in this. It's where being a woman is very helpful. You know what the other advantage you have, and I think that we need more of right now, because again, the crossover, we'll get to your other project later, and but it relates to this. The Paulist Fathers, one of their big goals is to deal with polarization in the country from their last assembly. I mean, that's one of their primary goals, and they're working on it. So, you know, they're seeing what you're saying. You know, the Holy Spirit's talking to both of you. But you have an expertise that you may not really think about because it's just normal to you. You live in a community. These dynamics that you're dropping, you take your average guy who's working for a living somewhere, there's no community. You might have a friend at work or something like that, but you have a hierarchy and you have a schedule and you know you either do it or you get you, you have a problem, but there's no let's talk. How, what do you, how do you see this? It's very, their lives are very top down, aside from the, whatever male problems there are, just their environment. You come from an environment where to function You've learned to do these kinds of things and to have these sensibilities. And, well, maybe it's me. Let me, maybe I need to learn something from them. That is amazing. If everybody just did that, if everybody said, okay, who do I hate? Oh, I hate the libs or the, these, you know, Trumpers or whatever. If they said, let me go and open myself up and try to understand them, we would all, the problem would probably be solved right there. But that's just amazing that you're willing to do it. So you have community. Can you talk about how your experience as a member of a religious community where you have to be sensitive to a whole bunch of other people and a range of people's ideas and stuff, how that informs this approach you have? Because I think that's something that we all need to learn, those of us who are not in a religious community. Yeah, I think you make a good point. I hadn't really thought about it that way, but I just before getting on with you guys, we're having this struggle about a process we're doing and our processes always include everybody. And so we need a process where we can get US, Mexico, Taiwan, and the Philippines all engaged. Those are very limited hours on Zoom. And so we have to get that window right. And then, but the questions are more reflective questions about where are we being called? How do we see it differently? And we're struggling with some of the same things that everybody deals with. A couple of our members who are older or very nervous about what does it mean about the future of our community? Some of our newer members are like gangbusters. Why are we only talking about us? We got to, you know, get out there. <laughs> and so finding a way where everybody is reverenced, everybody gets a response, and nothing is off the table keeps opening us up. But there's another piece, there's another piece to this that I've learned. 
It's about doing our personal work so that I'm secure enough in myself that I can be open to something else. Because if I'm insecure, then I'm not going to take anything else in. And I think in our society, too often, our insecurities trip us up. Because what happens when I'm insecure is I look more certain. <laughs> By Joe, I'm not sure. I'll, I'm not sure inside. But if I'm more stronger on the outside, then I'll really make my point. But what this requires is saying, I'm secure enough to say I don't know. And that doesn't happen all that often, I found. So what would that inner work consist of? Like, what, what are you referencing? Well, things like, well, therapy is helpful at times. I mean, it was great for me in my 40s, I'll tell you that. It saved my life. But being reflective, that our prayer practice would open us up to the questions of our time. Uh, okay, so I'm Simone for Simon Peter. I love it. And Jesus says to Peter, well, who do people say I am? Well, I don't know. It, you know, he's really off the wall, but it's being willing to open ourselves up to the part we don't know. Being willing to say, I don't know, but here's my best guess. What do you think? It's that comfort in the unknown that I think is an anchor of faith. Sounds like humility. Yeah, really. I just bring up an old word. Yeah. Yeah. You're describing humility. Got your feet on the ground, you know who you are and who you want, and you're open to saying, well, you know, I could learn yeah, something. Open to other ideas. Yeah, yeah it's amazing. It's oh, that's really stuff. nice because Benedict and Rule has 12 steps of humility. That's right. I always flunked them, but anyway, yeah. I think well, it might show. That's all cool. the humble people think they flunked it. <laughs> Ones who think they nailed it, they're killing the humility <laughs> thing. Yeah, no, you're well, not. That proves Most people not. think it's highly overrated, humility. So, um. Yeah, well, they should try it. Maybe they might find something. Really, yeah. Tom is very proud of his humility, aren't you, Tom? There you go. Yes, yes. Yeah. That's right. Tom got a medal for humility. So I let I let it to Drew, yeah. So yes, but they took, but he wore the medal for humility, so they took it away from him. <laughs> it's a long story; it's convoluted. But anyways, we're big on humility around here. This sounds kind of. This is ringing another bell for me. This, well, is, yeah, it is. Synod. This yeah, sounds what you're describing the process and your inner process, your community process, yeah. and what you're doing in the larger world. Would you think that's a fair characterization that this is similar to what Pope Francis is trying to do with half the church kicking and screaming? Uh, absolutely. It's similar. And it excites me because what it does is it anchors faith really in the people of God, in all of us. It's the insight from Vatican II made alive. I mean, when you read Church in the Modern World, from Vatican II, it was all about the engagement, the conversation, the opening up to see the deeper truth. And for me, that is the promise of what faith's about. It's really exciting. Where we get messed up is that in our very wealthy country, we think it's more about power and status, and that our leadership in many places has been seduced by the bright light of power or the glittery power part. And they've lost sight of really the synodal process is really about shepherding, about listening, about being attentive to what does our, our what do our sheep need? Who are we? Mm -hmm. How are we together? Think, uh, whole, you're also what? getting buy-in, which any process, I don't care what your model is, if you don't get buy-in 
you're going to be looking around and feeling pretty lonely, no matter how strident you are. You need to get buy-in, and you're describing a way that people get heard and listened to and accounted for and feel like they're part of this. Right, but one of the struggles for our beloved church in North America, I think, is that much of our leadership got enamored of the European model of being the king, and that is loneliness per se. But they think that loneliness is their right and due. It's it's breaking down a bit. We've got some good leadership now that's more about that pastoral approach of being together. But historically, the leadership model within the Roman Catholic Church has been the king. That hasn't worked real well. Not for about five, six hundred years now. It's been breaking down, and it's a question of, well, how bad's it got to get before we say, you know, we might want to take a different approach here. I'm just, we don't have to give up the franchise, but, you know, this is... That's a radical thought there, Dennis. I know, that's why I know. I understand that. Well, you're taking on the whole role of individualism, too, today. Like, we uh, we don't want to circle the wagons and work together. I think we've see that in the whole aspects of polarization. It's uh, Absolutely. We've Absolutely. been a long road, time on this road. Well, but we can trace back this veering off to individualism, really back to Ronald Reagan, who rewrote the founding story of our country. Because before that, it had always been Ben Franklin and we the people and pulling us together and all the colonies collaborating the revolution and then forming this nascent country with a new idea, but it was the colonies collaborating. But Reagan changed it to this one man on a horse riding off into the sunset, and that I settled it alone. And I remember when President Obama had the temerity to say that nobody makes their business alone because they need the roads, and they need the infrastructure, they need the water. Right. They need yeah, the self-made man craziness, yeah. Yeah, but it's that we don't see the fact that we're integrally connected. Mm-hmm. And, and this is another piece that the spiritual life really reveals is the fact that we are one body. We're all connected. But we don't see ourselves in that way because I think of our wealth in the U.S. We're able to hide that from ourselves. You've you got the whole world's on fire and falling into the sea and, you know, tornadoes, earthquakes, worse hurricanes, and they're hitting us and we're still saying, yeah, no, no, we're not connected. It's like, you know, there's no climate change. So there's a lot of areas. The resistance is, I mean, I'm going to use an old-fashioned word here. I think the resistance is demonic. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, your family's been farming here for 100 years. Tell me this is normal what you're experiencing right now. Tell me that your grandfather would recognize. I mean, you know what I mean? This is not political. You know, this is like, you're going to lose your crop. What do you think about that? You know, and it's like, no, no, it's good. Okay, well, you know, we really, the level of resistance, it's something, it is kind of supernatural, you know, it's really beyond, because if you were a, a degenerate flimflam man, when your scam that you're running isn't working, you change the scam. You don't say, oh, it's working. You're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose my money here. You know, it's just, yeah, it's just amazing. You well, know what, the two is, I just wonder how, how uh, even though we're individuals, how we can hear so many people that don't want their own health insurance, how they can be so enamored with the political powers that they're saying, no, don't give my family health insurance. I don't want Social Security. I, you know, it, it, we're voting against our own well-being in mm-hmm. supporting some of the care. 
I actually haven't heard individuals say they don't want their social security. I haven't heard. No, that. I want it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's no, mine. That, but, I paid into it. I want right, yeah. it. I kind of feel that way myself. But we if you, know, if you know but, the platform, you know that's on the agenda. But the well, governor, right? The state but it's politicized. But you know what I realized in my tour of the South is that okay? I was in Mississippi. Mississippi broke my heart. It was so touching. But the thing is, Mississippi's identity is still formed facing the past. And for them to accept Medicaid expansion is a surrender to the federal government. And a surrender to the federal government is another loss of their dignity as a state. Now, granted, it would get hundreds of thousands of people healthcare and save their rural hospitals and make a huge difference, but that's not their focus. That would be a focus on the future. Their focus is on the grievance of the past. We do. We have that in Florida too. We we won't take that. We've got yeah. two and a half million people yeah. don't need insurance. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's it's just. I mean, it's a God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Is the scripture that keeps coming back to my mind. It's like this is supernatural. This is not normal. Like why? How many plagues have to take you out before you go? Maybe we shouldn't. And then you get ten, and then follow them into the sea, and then get drowned. It's like, really? You know, like. You had me at the river in blood. I would have been, okay, go, go. <laughs> the locust. I didn't like the locust. Oh, my God, go. frogs. Okay, you got it. So let me, let's me let just turn the page here, sister, because we got a lot of ground to cover because you are Oops. an interesting human. Tell me about Hunger for Hope, your new book by Orbis, our friends at Marinol. Well, about? okay. So it was published in 20. So I wrote it just before COVID. But it was based on the idea of what does it take to nurture a prophetic imagination? And that what, as I traveled the country, so often it seemed like hope was missing or people were hungry for it. So that's why it's called Hunger for Hope. And hope is a communal virtue. And so it describes five characteristics of what we need in order to create communities of hope. And if hope is a communal virtue, then I got to be connected with somebody else. And then there's application of that to, I think I've got two or three political scenarios to address. One is economic disparity. One is the issue of abortion. And then one is the general political polarization and how do we create community beyond that? So it's really about trying to find ways of articulating a communal connection where we can move forward together. The toughest part is, I think, is the willingness to touch the pain of the world is real, not fix it. Progressives have a tendency to fix it, and conservatives have a tendency to ignore it. So, But just touch it, describe it, understand it, let our hearts be broken open. And this goes back to this whole idea of the synod, of touching the pain of the world, of opening our hearts to the reality. Accompaniment, then, right? Yeah, accompaniment. Then you got room for everybody. You can't leave. But if my heart's closed up, then I'm going to be very protective and not let everybody in because I got limited space. So let's be brokenhearted, open to each other. I think this Sunday's gospel with the leper, Jesus moved with pity. That whole compassion and empathy where he feels you know, today's world, I feel your pain, you know, to feel it in the real aspect of a hurt and simpatico with all those who are suffering this day. Yeah. To walk around being brokenhearted and open to the pain of the world, 
which most people are actively trying to shield themselves from because they have enough of it. Thank you very much for asking. You need to have a spiritual basis. You know, I, I think that's part of the problem we have is that if you don't have, I don't know, and maybe there is another way. I am unfamiliar with another way that a human can put themselves in a position where they are able to be broken hearted without a spiritual practice, a deep spiritual practice that protects them while they do that. What do you think, sister? Am I? I hadn't really realized that, Dennis, but the the first three chapters really are on meditation practice, how you could have a meditate, my meditation practice that I try to describe and invite people to join. And that it's in that context then that you can launch into this other piece. Oh, good. Okay. So you give them a little something to, to begin this process. Yeah, no, that's great. Because yeah. obviously you've been in the belly of the beast for a long time fighting, I mean, a Capitol Hill. Ooh, ooh, really? All those men. Oh, oh no. God. It's so I cool. need to take a bath after watching the news, sister. I mean, you know, and again, that's not a political statement. That's just, you know, people that are just like, really, you want the job that bad that you won't do the right thing? Really? How do you, and you sleep at night? I just can't get over it. So you've been dealing with this and smiling at these guys and trying to move them along and see the vision and da da da. And you, I mean, you're amazing. Well, the thing is that it's very different to do the work of it than to get the summary of it, because the summary of it gets either sensationalized or angled for their particular, you know, audience. So you don't really get the relationship. But okay, like, let me give you an example. So the, this one time I'm lobbying Paul Ryan, who was the head of the budget at that time. He was, this, you know, big Republican leadership, and he wanted to cut food stamps for working people. Most stupidest, dumb thing. I remember this conversation. Yeah, yeah. And so it's on our first bus trip. We were up in Milwaukee near his district, and I meet Jimmy and his wife and two kids, and they're at St. Benedict the Moore dining room having free dinner because they have to spend all their money for rent. And they have food stamps for the boys for breakfast and lunch. Oh, I guess the boys got lunch at school. And then they had, but they didn't have enough money for dinner. And they had a 14-year-old. And this kid, two boys, they're devouring all this food. And so I told Paul Ryan about this family. And he said, well, they're not the targets of my program. And he said, but though I said, but they're going to be your victims. I was like, oh, well, I got his attention. And we could begin to talk about how do we not leave working families out of the support that we need. And the other piece that really frustrated me was that for working families, these kinds of programs, which are called, you know, handouts from the government, they're really business subsidies because it allows businesses to pay low wages. and Walmart. Yeah. Walmart. I'm sorry. Someone said. Well, you know, it came Walmart. off the rails with David Stockman and voodoo economics. Once they came up with that term, you know, like, don't go looking for any sanity here. We just don't want to do this. Like you said, that whole image of a self-made man and I did this and everybody else needs to get off their butt and, uh, and make life work for them. And I don't know how you survived going up with the lobbyist and standing out there with the message because it's like Dennis said, the hardness of heart and that political will to say, no, we're a, we're people who are self-made. That's what America's all about. And don't go bringing anybody else into this country. That's, you know, no. It's delusional no. to the nth degree. Sister, Tom wants to get into the weeds with you a little bit on network. And sounds like this might be a good place in this discussion to 
relive your glory days there. Well, yeah. So how did you do deal with lawmakers that had people with millions of dollars and all the campaign contributions and you, you show up just asking to do what's right? How do you do that? I mean, you have the spiritual foundation, but still to go in every day and did you run into receptive people who were trying to do the right thing or was the political machinery already in work there? For the most part, people were trying to do good things. They may have a different vision of it, but the secret sauce for network, yeah, we had then was partially the nuns, but we had people in everybody's districts or states. And so we organized around the country. So when we went in, we would say, we have 75 members in your district and we're concerned about this. I mean, if we, 75 members, 75 votes, they pay attention. And especially in the House, the members of the House were more likely to know religious communities or the group of network. And then we would get our people back in the district or the state to go in and lobby, or we would then lobby after them so that it's, it became an inside-outside strategy. It was quite, as a really wonderful way to leverage power for a cause for good that our founding mothers in 1972 came up with. It was perfect. That makes sense to the whole mechanism of leverage. Yeah, that uh, what you see here, I got a mighty army behind me, but. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> It's picture of all those. Oh, it wasn't. You weren't. You weren't pitching. You weren't coming in. Uh, let me understand this. You weren't coming in as a sister and talking a moral game to these people. You were sweating them like the rest of the lobbyists with constituents and leverage and or both. Morality, but quite frankly, the moral suasion. When it comes to politicians, it doesn't carry a lot of weight. So you got to have backup for it. You can have the moral voice, but you can also need to say, and we've got X number of people in your district or in your state. This matters to them. Pay yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, people I've heard that. Story, yeah. Yeah. What can you do for me today, right, Tom? Hey, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it is a people game, I suppose. It, it's not just the money. I think maybe we get confused a little bit that there are people behind the scenes and that do make a difference, and people around the country difference. need to know that. They make a difference. Yeah, yeah. But, but the other piece was that happened when we had, well, the Affordable Care Act was our biggest victory ever. And the nuns on the bus gathered so much publicity that once you've got that public recognition, then politicians like it. It's like sure. a magnet for politicians. So then they want to be your friend. Regardless of party. You so, create the event. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we see yeah. that here when you have a catastrophe happen, you know, hurricanes in Florida, and all of a sudden everybody's got the limelight. And I don't know why you have 50 people who should be out working, standing behind the governor, who is the last person who should be <laughs> You should have the work. be nice if he out. was working. Yeah. I think you know, we all know why that is. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know but, why. But that's no matter what state. It, we see it over and over again instead of the emergency responders. But on your uh, travels for the road trip, and that whole hope in turbulent times. What do you come away with from that? We heard some of the listening that you did and how that went. What's your own personal assessment? Was it a successful way? Did you, uh, did you reach a lot of people in a way that opened up their vision, a prophetic vision for the future? Are they 
Did people go back maybe and start little communities? Uh, any assessment of that? Oh, I didn't go as a missionary to change them. I went as a missionary to change me. And mm. so the fact that I'm different, I think, has had impact on those I'm around. More compassion for the South. The fact is people from the South don't travel North and folks from the North don't travel to the South unless it's down to the coast. So there really isn't this cross-section. We don't know each other. And there's a lot of judgment. Uh, people said to me, oh, you're going to the South. Aren't you afraid? Well, no, not really. Not until you said that. But it's like the capacity to talk to each other and to be curious enough to listen I think is something that I'm really trying to promote, the virtue of holy curiosity. And I've got another one that goes along with holy curiosity, and that is sacred gossip. Sacred gossip, not ordinary gossip. Sacred gossip is sharing what you've heard when you've been curious, so that people can benefit from a broader perspective. It, it, we too easily categorize each other and limit each other by my own fears or apprehensions. And I don't want to learn because if I learned, I might have to change. Well, I think change is a good thing. Isn't it great to learn, to grow? And I'm old enough to think it would be boring if I had just arrived and knew it all. I would be so bored with myself. It would just drive me crazy. That's why people listen to podcasts. Usually. Yeah. Learn new things. You just don't have a big amygdala, sister. That's all. The fear center. Is <laughs> These other people, they got giant amygdalas, and it's like, yeah, no, change is bad. The furniture is arranged up there. The cement is hardened. I got one neural groove left, and I am not doing so. You know, I mean, it's just on a psychological level. That's not a political comment. And I, I mean, I, some of my liberal friends are that way too. It's like, really. Really? You can't give this guy just did a good thing. I know he's in the other party, but you can't give him credit for feeding an orphan. Really? And half of them are not. And these are religious people, various denominations. And they're not, they don't even pretend. It's like, no. So no mercy. You know, it's like, wow. Wow. I'm afraid for you now, for your salvation. I mean, really? That's pretty dark. Uh, and it's pretty interesting, too, that I think mental, for mental well being and health, and I think to postpone. Alzheimer's, they say, learn something completely different. Step out of your zone. You know, if you've never, I don't know, knit, have done any knitting or painting, use a different part of your brain to, to help do that. You would think that would be very applicable to the spiritual world. Well, let me take in some input from something that would uh, be different than my way of thinking. But well, can I tell you? Can I tell you what I'm currently up to? I don't know if you well, guys. Certainly. <laughs> I got recruited by the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago to be one of their Pritzker fellows for this winter and spring term. Sounds great. I give a lecture a week, eight weeks, have office hours, talk to kids. But the other fellows are of great interest to me because one of them is Lori Lightfoot, the former mayor of Chicago. But another one is Mick Mulvaney, Trump's second chief of staff and former member of Congress and creator of the Freedom Caucus. And his, the other guy's Todd, who is a head, head of communications for the Tim Scott campaign. And so the diversity makes it quite interesting, but I have to 
Okay, bless me, brothers, for I have sinned. I know, I'm I already ahead the, of you. I already sinned. I don't even know what you're going to say, but go ahead. <laughs> no, what I heard who was the other fellows, it was like, I just talk about talking to people who think differently. I don't talk to these really extreme guys. But anyway, so I'm getting a chance to talk to them. So, Sister Simone, we are in an election year this year and coming up at us very quickly. What would you say to Catholics who'd be listening to this as to how they might go about thinking of the political choices they have before them? I mean, I go back to what we said in 2020, is that from my perspective, Catholics, people of faith, cannot vote in good conscience for Donald Trump, period. His denigration of people, not even just those at the margins, anyone that doesn't agree with him, his refusal to be part of a community, his inability to learn, and his brass dominance of anyone around him means he's not good for democracy. And so we took a, our board approved a very strong position that good Catholics cannot vote for Trump, period. After that, what do you do? That is much more wide open in terms of how you make your choices. But don't do evil. And for me, that would be evil. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Gee, don't hold back. Tell us how there's you There's no misunderstanding huh? that, really. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, really powerful, powerful. Yeah. I wanted to ask you a question because I thought the nuns on the bus thing just, it worked so well and it was so interesting. Is there any thoughts about making that a regular tour or an ongoing tour? I mean, maybe we should found a community that just lives on a bus and goes around raising awareness. It seemed to work so well. Is it gone forever, do you know? Or what are your thoughts? Or did you decide, no, nah, it's had its moment. It'll never rise to yeah. that again. We did it seven times. Right. So, I mean, we did do it more than once because of that reality. I hear there may be one in the fall. I don't know. We'll see how that plays out. I'm not at network, so I don't know what they're planning, but it, I heard that's a possibility. But it, it really was a gift of the spirit. And we did it because the Vatican had sent in the Center of Leadership Conference of Women Religious in April of 2012, named our little organization that had nine full-time staff at that time and said we were a bad influence on Catholic sisters because we promoted radical feminist themes incompatible with the gospel. Well, they had never talked to us. The real thing was they were upset that we had won in the Affordable Care Act when the bishops had opposed it. But the bishops in 2010 had opposed it because their staff gave them bad advice. Right. I was going to say yeah. that there was a federal funding of abortion in the Affordable Care Act. Right. They would have come back. They would have come back again at you if they had a leg to stand on, because that's what people miss. It's like, this is the gospel. What are you talking about, Bishop? Please explain to me where I'm mistaken. And if they could, some of them would have. And they did. Okay. Because... But here's the Holy Spirit. Here's the Holy Spirit. Is So two years later, they come back at us promoting radical feminist themes. LCWR, the Leadership Conference of Women Religious, has to be quiet because they're dealing with Rome. We didn't have any connection to Rome, so I could be public. Network went public, and we answered the press. 
I never said a negative word about the bishops. I spoke about our mission. But this came four days after our 40th anniversary, where our big thing was, how do we get our message out there? How do we let people know we've been working on Capitol Hill for 40 years? Well, the Vatican answered our prayer. And so my prayer then became, I got to yeah. buy that book, Tom, yeah, Band yeah, in yeah, Boston. Yeah. <laughs> well, but my prayer became, how do we use this moment for mission? And we had a meeting in May of the various people I talked to, about 35 people gathered in our small little conference room. And at the end of an hour and a half meeting, nobody knows who said who first said go on the road. But we were going on the road. We were pushing back against the Ryan budget and lifting up the works of Catholic Sisters. And that's what we did. And then we found a press release from the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. The headline was, Ryan budget fails a basic moral test. So we made hundreds of copies of that thing, and we handed it out saying, I remember that, yeah. We stand with our bishops. We mm -hmm. stand with our bishops. Sure, sure. It was so much fun. But the other thing is that there were places where we couldn't have our events on Catholic property. And yep. so what happened because of that is that it became much more of an interfaith reality, because we'd go to the Presbyterians or the Lutherans or the Jewish synagogue or you know, a wide variety of places so that it was like Pentecost, that we had been in this upper room of the church and we got pushed out in the best sense of the word to engage more fully in our society. So I think too often the hurtful things, we focus on the hurt as opposed to the gift that they also are. Sure, right. the Holy Spirit again, active. Active in a diaspora, you know, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. that's right. The persecutions of the church spread the faith. I mean, I'm sure it was no fun for the people at the time, but it certainly did. We have the religion, we have the sisters we have because of so many places in Europe that said, No, we're cracking down on the church, and they packed up and came to the new world. Oh, killed know, the begins, right? The begins that, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, that. Oh, no, I'm just talking about like France yeah. and you know, in Germany and various much later than the, the begins and everything, but uh, it's spread. I mean, the whole God's going to find his, uh, his way, and the Holy Spirit's going to have her way. Her way, excuse me. No, I said her for Holy Spirit. It, it did. You corrected yourself. I did. I no, I said his for God. Yeah. I did both. I was oh, very even-handed, okay. Deacon. Tom. I didn't hear. My ears are slow today. No, right? I'm trying to please everybody here. Come on. No, that's <laughs> but that's sisters, right? Only the gospel can spread the gospel. You can't. Like, I'm going to go out here and be petty or political or whatever. That doesn't work. It never has. I don't understand. They don't get this. Let me, let me tell you one, one little story about Hershey, Pennsylvania, that first year. And we were supposed to do it at one parish, and then the diocese closed it down. And then we're, the woman trying to organize it got it in another, and the diocese closed it down. Got it at the, there's only four parishes. Finally got to the fourth parish, got it there, and then the diocese closed it down. And she calls me, and I'm on the bus. We finally connect. She's just so upset. And I said, well, there's got to be in other places. And she said, well, we do have the recreation center at the trailer park. Is that okay? Oh, that's perfect. It's fabulous. Let's do it there. We had 150 people show up at the trailer park. It was yeah. a gift. It was yeah. a gift. So tell us about your new project that you're involved in now, Let's Understand. Can you give us a little idea of what we can look forward to from the adventures of Sister Simone? <laughs> bus or no bus? Bus, bus or no bus. bus. Well, yeah, yeah, but so what we're working on, Greg Schmidt, 
Michael Ventura and I have been working, trying to find venues where we can convene conversations, small conversations, not big ones, where we teach some skills about how you do have empathy, compassion, how you can hold that, feel secure enough in your judgment that you don't have to put it out there. And so Michael especially has developed this process that he's done in corporate America that we're trying to adapt and share with more secular groups or faith communities. And so our project is, we've been doing testing it. And then I got sidetracked by this University of Chicago thing. So June, July, this summer, we're going to do a couple of focus groups and then hope to launch it in the fall in advance of the election. So that's our project. It's kind of fun. And it's to, to lay the found work, to have the conversations we were talking about earlier, to get you secure enough that you're not reactive and knee-jerking exactly. and all that. Is that... Do I understand exactly. that? Exactly. Exactly. You feel good enough about yourself that you can listen to another point of view and not go crazy. You know, we try, what we're trying to do here, we have a lot of people, a lot of different people, all kinds of people. And we try to showcase these good people in various walks of life and ministries trying to live the gospel. And we, we aim this podcast, hopefully, at the people on the threshold of the church, you know, the people that are saying, I think I might leave. Or people saying, well, that looks kind of interesting. Maybe I should come in. But threshold people. And of course, what we're, we love, we love this church despite all its flaws, as you do. And, you know, and the reason, you know, we love it is because of people like you. I mean, this is the deal. That Yes, there are bad things and broken things, but there are good things. So the question we ask all our guests to gain a little bit of their wisdom is if you were talking to such a person on the threshold, either thinking about leaving, thinking about coming in, what would you say to them? I would say, come on in, go deeper. The water's fine. The fact is that we together can be a community of hope. Hope is a communal virtue. You can't do it alone. And we're here to support each other in that process. And I find it a rich journey. And I'd be eager to share it with you. Come on along. It's a great answer. That, that aspect of hope, communal hope. Yeah. We'll keep you in our thoughts and prayers as you endeavor to interact with these folks. And we'll Again, ask for the Holy Spirit to be at work in all those conversations. Thank you. Sister Simone, thank you so much for being here. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you, guys. Very good. We really do. Take care. Okay. Take care. Bye now. Special thanks to El Jefe Paul Snatchko and our editor, David Dalt. The Deacon's Pod is powered by the Paulus Fathers. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts and, of course, at our own website, www.deaconspod.com. That's D-E-A-C-O-N-S with an S, Deacons, plural, pod, all one word, dot com. And of course, we'd love to hear your comments at our email address, which is deaconspod, again, with an S, deacons, at paulist.org. That's P-A-U-L-I-S-T dot org. Love to hear from you. That's our offering. We thank you for being with us. On behalf of our colleagues at the Missionary Society of St. Paul the Apostle, we wish you a future brighter than any past. Till next time.